From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we welcome back Professor Cannon to the podcast. Professor Cannon was instrumental in kicking off our election 2020 series. Back in February, which now seems like forever ago, we reached out to Professor Cannon to talk us through the craziness of the Iowa caucus mess. At the time, the lack of results and the mistakes that were made by Iowa election officials seemed like political news of potentially historic proportion. Little did we know then that what constitutes unprecedented news would change so drastically in our COVID-19 shelter at home world. But before the semester officially ends, we wanted to talk to Professor Cannon one more time about the state of our politics, even in these uncertain, stressful, and unpredictable COVID-19 times. So, Professor Cannon, thanks for joining us again on the podcast. Good to be with you. Great. So, like I said, we first talked to you back in February when we didn't have the results from the Iowa caucuses. A lot has changed since then. We talked after South Carolina when Joe Biden beat expectations and essentially set off the rest of his political campaign. Now we're at the point in the campaign where we have the presumptive nominee, who is Joe Biden. So much has changed since even South Carolina and since Joe Biden came to the forefront. Can you think of a time in American politics where the political world has made such deep and drastic shifts as the ones that we're now experiencing? Yeah, it's hard to think of any time that's had that kind of rapid change, that we're much more accustomed to the primary election process unfolding slowly over a period of of elections where, you know, the candidates kind of go back and forth and they they typically have been, you know, narrowed down to two candidates. They'll fight it out, you know, kind of to the end. And that's definitely nothing like the the pattern we saw this time around when, you know, after Super Tuesday, it was pretty clear at that point that Joe Biden was going to be the nominee. Uh, Even then, though, a lot of people thought Sanders might fight it out to the end. Uh, but then, you know, COVID uh, intervened and it just became impossible to campaign. And also just the math of delegate selection made it clear that Sanders was not going to be able to overtake Biden. And so he did surprise some people, though, when he suspended his campaign a couple of weeks ago and basically you know, said that, that Biden's the nominee and, and endorsed uh, Joe Biden. So the, the, the speed with which that happened uh, is, I think, pretty unprecedented in presidential nomination politics, at least in the modern era, you know, since 1972, since we've had the, the current set of rules that we're still using today. Kind of just thinking as a whole right now of the entire game board, kind of as it is, is there a way that we can normalize what's happening in politics right now? Like, you know, we're staring down the face of a legal battle here in Wisconsin between the Republicans in the legislature and uh, the governor's stay-at-home order. They're bringing it to the Supreme Court. Is is there any point in history and any kind of framework we can put on top of our political world right now that helps us make sense of this? Well, there's certainly other elections that have been held in American history that were in really unusual times. And I think the one you'd have to put at the top of the list is 1864 in the middle of the Civil War. So here you have a presidential election, Abraham Lincoln you know, up for, for re-election. 
that's being conducted in the middle of a civil war. There's the, the, still the, the bloodiest war in American history. Uh, and you have you know, the Confederate states obviously in our, not participating in the presidential election. And yet in, in that election, we had 74% voter turnout, which is kind of remarkable when you think about it. Now, this was before women were voting, before African-Americans had the vote, but still that was only a little bit lower than the elections that were held in the previous election and in the, the subsequent election, about four, 7% lower than those elections. So there you have probably the most dramatic uh, moment in American history in terms of a presidential election. And still we had three fourths of the voters turning out to vote. And then the other one that probably is most comparable to 2020 would be 1918. During the pandemic of 1918, the Spanish flu that killed 50 million people worldwide and killed 675,000 people in the United States, we held midterm elections that fall in the middle of the pandemic. So there had been a, a pretty big uh, resurgence of the, of the flu in October. It was, you know, people, thousands of people were, were dying every week. Uh, and yet in that election, they had, again, reasonable turnout for a midterm election, about 40% of the electorate turnout there, which was lower, about 10% lower than the two previous midterm uh, elections. But still, that's, you know, even in these tough times of a civil war, a pandemic that was, you know, much uh, more lethal than the one we're experiencing right now, elections still did go forward. And then the other two you'd have to mention more briefly, 1932, the beginning of the, you know, the or in the middle of the Great Depression, but the, at the beginning of the New Deal with FDR's election, uh, there too you had you know, pretty good turnout. And then in 1944, in the middle of World War II, we had a, a presidential election. So we've had elections in, in tough and unusual times. There's no doubt that the election this fall will go into that category of these really historic moments of posing really difficult situations for getting voters to the polls. But we've been there before, we've done that before, and I think we'll figure out a way to get this done in November. Okay, so shifting over from the historical framework to how the public is thinking and acting about the pandemic, or acting around the pandemic, Pew Research has done polling and found that there is, in fact, a partisan divide between Republicans and Democrats' perceptions on how serious the COVID-19 virus is and what steps they're taking to mitigate the spread. How uh, do you make sense of this partisan divide? Yeah, it really is something you would expect wouldn't have a, a partisan split. That if, you know, this is an issue that's affecting everyone. And you would think this would be an issue where people could agree that, yeah, we do need to, to do something to, to try to keep the American public safe. But what you're seeing now, especially in some of the protests that started in Michigan and now you know, here in Wisconsin, we're going to have a protest down at the Capitol on Friday, uh, where you know, many other states have done this, of the open it up uh, you know, protests. And here, I, I think that what's leading this partisan divide now is, is really coming from the White House, from President Trump, where he sends very conflicting messages on a daily basis. You know, where on the one hand, he's still you know, talking about the, the need to have the social distancing and, and the, the importance of, of trying to, to mitigate the spread of the, the virus and talking about how serious it is. But at the same time, he'll tweet out, you know, liberate Minnesota, liberate Michigan, and sort of encouraging, you know, egging on the, the protesters who are like openly flaunting the, the social distancing and the stay-at-home orders. And so I think that's why you're getting the partisan divide today is that the president is kind of, of leading that, you know, where his supporters 
are more likely now to say that it isn't as big a deal um, as, as Democrats who see it as, as more serious. And so while intuitively, again, you would think this would be an issue where you shouldn't see a partisan divide, I think because of the messages that are coming from the White House now, uh, that is starting to, to lead to this split we're seeing today. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, one, one last point on that, actually, though, yeah. that I think is important to note is that even with the partisan divide we're seeing, and, it, and depending on the question, it, it ranges from you know, high single digits to sort of mid-teens or so in terms of the difference between Democrats and Republicans saying how serious it is. But having said that, still large majorities of Republicans still say that we do need social distancing, that we, we should you know, have a stay-at-home order, that we should be you know, canceling sporting events and so on. And so you still see majorities of Republicans even you know, supporting the idea that we need to be doing things to, to contain the spread of, of the virus. Kind of moving on to looking at the president right now and how he, him and his administration are handling all this. What do you think the impact is of the daily Trump press briefings? Like, what do you think the effect that those are having on the polls right now, if there is any effect or if COVID-19 will will ultimately prove beneficial or not to the president's re-election bid? Well, I, it seems to me that based on just what you're seeing in the media and in terms of responses from some of his supporters saying that you need to pull back on the, the briefing sessions uh, and not to be as partisan in terms of attacking Democratic governors, and this is coming from a lot of his supporters saying this, it does seem like the, the early positive boost that he was getting from these has started to wane. It seems like, and his poll numbers have come down in the, the last few days. There was a Rasmussen poll that came out today. It was the lowest I think we've ever seen of Rasmussen poll in the last 12 months. I uh, had him at 44%, which uh, adjusted approval is like 36% for, for the Rasmussen poll. Uh, and so that, I, I think they're, I think he's hit his peak in terms of his ability to use those daily briefings as his his personal you know campaign uh, stump speech basically is what he was using it for. And I think that's growing old now. I think people prefer to have the more fact based approach that that Whitmer and Cuomo and some of the Democratic governors are are doing. Uh, those I think are getting much more favorable press coverage overall. Uh, than Trump's briefings that you know, often do turn into these you know, partisan slugfests where he just uses it as a chance to air his grievances and to attack people who aren't supporting him enough in his view, uh, rather than getting information that needs to, to get out there. So I would say, while initially those briefings clearly were a boost to the president, I don't think that's the case anymore. I think it's starting to have maybe not quite strong enough to say a backlash effect, but at least you know neutral at this point, not helping him. And the longer this drags on, the worse this is for the president. There's there's no doubt that that's why he would like to open up the economy rather than, sooner rather than later, um, because clearly he wants to you know try to put this behind us. But the irony, of course, is if you do that, I think you're guaranteeing this does drag on longer than if you do take the more conservative approach of having a longer stay at home. You know, where you really try to, to knock back the virus before you start opening up more gradually. So would you say that this situation has kind of exacerbated 
critique on the president's kind of like sh- TV showman model of himself, like both as president and um, when he is on his daily press briefings. Like, do you think yeah. that that is ultimately a critique of this and like ultimately kind of showing how that that is not helping his presidency at all? Well, right. No, I, this absolutely is a perfect example of how he's conducted his presidency from the beginning. But it's one thing to, to do this when it's his traditional format of the, the big campaign rallies. That's where President Trump was always, you know, in his element when he was just he loved being in front of the 20,000 adoring fans. And that's when he would you know, give his stump speeches where he would do his typical thing of, you know, again, airing his grievances, attacking his opponents, and his fans loved it. They ate it up. And this was Trump's, uh, you know, that's how he lived, basically. And that was fine when that was a campaign kind of context. And he was sort of always in campaign mode. Well, you can't do that when you're in the middle of a pandemic. It just, it's not a model that works anymore. And I think people now are, are seeing that and, and getting tired of it and wanting to have more assurance of a consistent message of here's how we're going to fix this problem. And to have the president flipping back and forth from you know day to day or even hour to hour in some context of saying things like, like you said last week of, you know, I'm the person who gets to decide, you know, when we open up and constitutionally I'm in charge and governors can't do anything without my approval. Well, that's simply not true. And like every constitutional scholar in the country, including John Yu, who was the one that that you know, made up the, the, the presidential powers that allowed for uh, you know, the extraordinary rendition and, and torture in the Bush administration. So like the strongest advocate of presidential power that's out there as a constitutional scholar, even he said that that's not in our constitution. You can't do that. And within 24 hours, the president backed down and said, oh, sorry, oops, yeah, the governors do get to decide this. Well, it's that kind of flip-flopping and inconsistency, I think, that, that makes this so evident that the president just you know, shooting from the hip, saying what he wants to say, which is fine on the campaign stump in front of 20,000 adoring fans, doesn't work anymore in this context when people want a consistent message of, okay, here's how we move forward. Um, just kind of going off of what you just talked about too, something I've been thinking about with this is it seems like the role or at least how like Republicans have been talking about federalism has like taken a large part on the recovery of the COVID-19 virus. And I'm kind of wondering as a scholar and someone who studied that, what, what sorts of reactions do you have to this debate around federalism? Is this how federalism is supposed to work? Do you think this is the appropriate ways to tackle a pandemic like this, where you have states competing with each other and sort of different messaging coming from different governors um, and writ large between the governors and the president? Yeah, so that's a complicated question. It's a really good question. Um, So I would say that COVID is a, a great example of both how our system of federalism should work and how it's not working both at the same time. That so on the one hand, I think the advocates of federalism that we should have this split in power between the national government and state governments and the states, you know, should be able to call the shots on certain things like, you know, the, the health of their their citizens, you know, some of that makes a lot of sense. And you wouldn't want the same overall approach to how you would tackle this in Wyoming and New York City. Like those are just really different places in terms of the population, the the needs of like the kinds of things you would do 
to, to both protect the citizenry and then to eventually open back up are going to be really different in, in those two contexts. And so to have a one-size-fits-all there really wouldn't make sense. And having our system of federalism, I think, is, 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 is good and is appropriate you know, to have different kinds of responses from governors. On the other hand, where it doesn't make sense and where I was really glad to see yesterday the Senate did include the $25 billion for testing, in the, the national legislation that, that the House is supposed to vote on either today or tomorrow um, to put more money into small businesses and hospitals that included $25 billion for testing, which is a, an example of what needs to be done at the national level. We can't have 50 states competing for you know, the different you know, testing equipment that you need, like we're running short of the nasal swabs and we're all, you know, the governors are trying to buy these you know, nasal swabs from all these different you know, sites and, and having that kind of competition to be able to do the testing we need at a scale that's anywhere from you know four to ten times as much as we're doing now, that's going to take a national effort. That can't be done at the state level. I think you know Congress taking that action and the White House agreeing to that is a nod in that direction anyway, that we're going to need concerted national effort there to provide the kind of testing we need that will allow us to eventually open our economies back up. Right. And when we talk about the economy, sort of moving into that discussion, looking at the economic downturn that this is inevitably and already causing, I was reading a New York Times article that said it's hard to even make sense of the data we currently have and that our economic yeah. models weren't even built for what we're witnessing as right. a result of these shutdowns. And I know a lot of the protests, the upcoming one in Madison, the ones that have happened and gotten news around the country, a lot of those are grounded sort of in economic arguments of reopening the economy with that right. focus. And historically, a bad economy hurts the incumbent. How do you analyze Trump's efforts um, to say the economy is rolling along and blaming that on the pandemic? Um, I think this is also a question of how the economic downturn gets framed. But considering the economy and the inevitable downturn that will last until November, how does that affect Trump's prospects for re-election? Well, yeah, this is the big question of, of how quickly the economy bounces back, whether or not we're still in the depths of a recession in November or not. I think if we are still in a, in a deep recession in November, it'll be really hard for President Trump to get reelected. Uh, that it, even with his, his efforts to you know, blame this on someone else, you know, first blame it on China, then on WHO, he tried to do, and then you know, reports came out that he had his people at all those WHO meetings from the very beginning, so it's kind of hard to blame them. But yeah, he clearly is, is trying to, to find someone else to pin the blame on. But I think the reality is that when you have a weak economy, especially if it stays you know, kind of the way it, it's looking right now, it's really hard for an incumbent president get, to get reelected. And so I think that that's pretty clear. And that's why the president is so eager to try to, to get the, the economy opened up again and to get businesses you know, back more or less to normal you know, by the fall anyway. But that's going to be a tough thing to do because until we get the testing we need on a scale, again, that's five to ten times as much as we're doing right now, uh, and, and even then, until we have a vaccine, a lot of people aren't going to feel comfortable going out into the public, whether it's going to a movie or going to a restaurant or certainly not going to a Badger football game, you know, it's really hard to see that happening in the fall because we're not going to have a vaccine by the fall. It's going to be, you know, probably early 2021 at the earliest before that happens. And so, you know, a lot of people talk about a V-shape recovery or like a W-shape or a U-shape or something. We're not going to get the V-shape. That's the quick bounce back. And that's, you know, definitely not going to happen. 
the, the longer, slower, gradual opening up and a, a gradual kind of revival of the economy, I think is probably the most likely thing to happen. But the question is, when does that happen? Will we still be in recession in the fall? I think there's probably a pretty good chance we will be. Uh, thank you for that answer. It's, you know, disheartening to hear, but I think that's the truth of what's going to happen. You spoke a little bit about Trump's approval ratings and the potential impact of his press, press briefings on his approval. What are the polls looking right now for Biden versus Trump? Well, right now, the poll aggregators have it at about a six-point lead for Biden nationally. Um, and if you look at the battleground states, it's a little closer than that. It's more like about 4% in the battleground states. And so, you know, Biden, you know, definitely is ahead. And if the election were held today, it looks like Biden would probably win. Um, but, you know, a lot can happen between now and November, obviously. Uh, and, it, and it really is going to come down to those, those key battleground states, Wisconsin being one of them. Another big thing in the news that is starting to garner a little bit more attention is the former vice president's pick for his own vice presidential candidate. Um, he has committed to picking a woman. Are you seeing any movement in one particular camp? Are you seeing anything uh, in particular to point towards uh, a certain candidate? Yeah, I, it's hard to know exactly you know, what direction Biden's going to go here. You're, you're right. He is you know, committed publicly to, to choosing a woman. I think a lot of people thought Amy Klobuchar early on, but that was pre-COVID. And now uh, Gretchen Whitmer is the, you know, the, the Democratic governor from Michigan who's been you know, sort of uh, having a tussle with President Trump uh, off and on about getting support for her state. Uh, her stock has certainly risen quite a bit. Uh, you know, so Kamala Harris is another one that you, you know, hear mentioned a uh, fair amount. Uh, so it's, it's hard to say. I would say, you know, one of those three seemed the most likely to me, but he could surprise us with someone else as well. Okay, so when you were just answering the previous question, I was curious about what you think the rest of the Biden versus Trump campaign will look like, especially if we remain in, with social distancing measures. In particular, do you think debates will happen, like some sort of virtual debate? Yeah, I'm sure they'll have a debate. It seems like they'll have to at least have a few debates. And they, they could even have those you know, in a studio without a live audience. That would certainly be possible to do. Um, and I, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm quite sure they'll at least uh, will be proposing that. And I would imagine that both sides will agree to that. That's been such a, a tradition now in presidential politics for, for some time that it seems like that will be part of the campaign that we, we will get. But then the rest of it is certainly open to question that if, if we are, if we remain in some kind of social distancing, you know, through the, the fall even, then the, the typical you know, way of campaigning is going to have to be, you know, really, uh, it's have to be an entirely different model. So it have to be more online, have to be more on, on television, you know, more through the earned media of doing, you know, more of the talk shows. Um, so it's, it's a whole new ballgame in terms of how that plays out. And it's just hard to know exactly what that looks like, but it's going to be, you know, some combination of, of online, earned media, and then uh, hopefully having you know, some presidential debates. And kind of the same sort of question, but what do you think about the DNC convention that was supposed to take place in Milwaukee this summer? What do you think will happen with that? Yeah, so it's, it's looking more and more like that's going to have to be done virtually as well. Um, I, it's you know, something that 
that both parties are, are struggling with in terms of how that's going to play out. But my guess is that'll be done virtually. One thing we're just hearing today about the U.S. House of Representatives, they're in now uh, trying to approve for the first time remote voting. They've never done that before, ever, in the history of, of the institution. So I think that all of our political institutions are dealing with the reality of, of operating in the COVID world. And, and so it seems to me conventions will be another thing that we probably end up going to the, a virtual version of them. Yeah, I have a follow-up on that too. And I know before this was more of a discussion as we were moving into the Supreme Court election here in Wisconsin, but there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of attention that gets put on mail-in voting and sort of mm -hmm. the question of who actually benefits from something like that. And there's sort of that dominant narrative that liberal candidates stand to gain from that. But I know you've done research yourself on the effects of mail-in voting. Could you maybe just give your advice or your insight into who or if that actually helps someone? Well, right. So in the states that have had mail-in voting for the longest time, Oregon and, and Washington, and then in other states that have tried it pretty uh, more recently, uh, Colorado, Utah, um, there hasn't been consistent evidence of the mail-in voting helping Democrats or Republicans. It really is has been pretty much a, of a wash. Um, now, in our recent primary, where Grosky beat Kelly for the Supreme Court seat, um, there, the New York Times just yesterday published an analysis showing that Karofsky really did uh, benefit from the mail-in voting. The Democrats are much more organized in getting, you know, not just in Dane County and Milwaukee County, but in a lot of Republican counties, too. Uh, Karofsky did a lot better with the mail-in vote than she did with the, the live voting. And so that's at least one example of mail-in voting helping the liberal candidate. Um, but historically, in the last you know, decade or so, that hasn't been the case. Um, that's been, you know, kind of a wash. It's been pretty even, you know, both both sides. Uh, and so in a, in a national election, you know, like say November goes, you know, more heavily to a mail-in election where both sides are going to be, you know, hugely energized and trying to get their, their base out. It's not clear to me that it helps one or the other. In fact, if you go back far enough in history to when it was called absentee voting, when it really was more like unusual kind of thing that we have today, with mail-in voting, um, then it, it actually helped Republicans more. That it was, you know, they were the ones that ten, tended to make more use of absentee voting. And so this isn't a, a tool of electing people that I think, you know, guarantees one result in a in a direct, you know, it's saying it's going to help liberal voters. Like President Trump said, if we go to all mail elections, Republicans are never going to win another election. Is is what President Trump said. Um, and I don't think there is evidence to that from the states that actually have used it. Great. Thank you for that. Yep. Um, so we're kind of wrapping up here and we've been asking one question of all the professors we've been having on here and getting a lot of great advice. Um, so take this however you want to, but how would you advise students and especially seniors right now just on hanging in there, staying positive? And for those who are thinking about the job market, law school and grad school, what kind of advice do you have for them? Yeah, that's a good good question. It certainly is a tough time right now with the, the stay at home and the, the economy. You know, a, a tough situation. Uh, if you're graduating this spring, it, it's you know people are gonna I'm sure just miss that that last semester on campus. Senior year is a pretty special time, and to you know not be there at Camp Randall for graduation that that's gonna be tough for people to 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 miss that. But but a couple things. One, just on on that part of like missing that last semester, you know, on campus. One great thing about UW and our alumni network 
is that the, the, the Badger Nation is an amazing group of alumni. I've given a lot of talks around the country to different alumni groups, and everyone loves Madison so much, and they all come back to campus. And so just because, you know, you missed your graduation uh, doesn't mean you can't come back. And so, you know, I would encourage all graduating seniors just to, you know, keep your ties with the university, come back as often as you can. There's always, you know, it's a great place to, uh, to visit as a, an alum. So just on kind of that side of things. But then on the, the bigger question of, of career and the economy and, and what to do to, to stay positive, I mean, I, that is really important to, to, to know that this is a short-term thing. Yeah, these are really tough times we're in right now, but we are going to be out of this uh, you know, difficult period you know, by early next year. It, it seems like the, the worst of it will be over you know, probably you know, even by the summer, and we'll start to be bouncing back at that point. And so, you know, going to, to graduate, graduate school to get some, you know, more experience uh, in the, the field of your, uh, of your interest might be a good thing to do for next year, um, given that it's, you know, not going to be a great time to be looking for a job, you know, this summer or in the fall. You know, getting some, some more education, getting another degree might be a good thing to do next year. And then the economy should be bounced back and strong by 2021. And then you'll be in a good spot to, to step into beginning your career. Um, Great. Well, Professor Cannon, thank you so much. Um, we also want to thank you, too, for just being such an active part of the podcast this semester and helping us grow and develop it, reaching alumni and undergrads alike. We really appreciate your participation and your engagement and all you've done as a faculty member. So thanks for joining us today and uh, stay safe and healthy. Well, thanks, David. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, you guys have done a great job, too. I've, I've enjoyed being a part of this. So thank you. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.